Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thanks, Brent. Good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, Thank you, Paige, for sharing your story with us. Uh, Thank you for encouraging us to think about how we can be influencers and make an impact in the world around us. Um, You're going to get to hear for the next five weeks uh, of some additional North influencers, and so stay tuned for those as we hear about all the different stories. You'll be amazed in some cases at the way that our church people are impacting the world around us. It's amazing to be able to see that, and it's a joy to celebrate with them as well. Uh, But welcome to our uh, open house series. I have to say, first of all, the Me and My Guy dance was fantastic. I was a part of that, got a chance to be a part of it as well. Feel blessed and encouraged, but I'll also say this as somebody who was in that video, um, I never, that video was taken against my will and I never signed a release, so I don't know how, it was never, I I don't know how that got into the public eye, but apparently, um, anyway, (laughs) how embarrassing, but that's okay. It's all for the girls, right? It's all for the kids. Um, but welcome to our open house event, our series. Uh, we are focusing over the next six weeks on and keeping our or, or, or presenting our church as an open house. Uh, in reality, though, the church should always be an open house. The church is always open. Our doors are always open to anybody who wants to be a part, anybody who wants to come in and worship with us and be a part of North Bible Church. And so uh, it's not just like these next six weeks where we're being welcoming. We want to be welcoming all the time. And so this series and this emphasis is going to help to give us a reminder, I think, in some ways. One of the things it's going to do is give us a reminder about how the church is meant to be an open house, how we're meant to be a place for all people to come and to participate and to worship and to enjoy fellowship and relationship with us and, and to hear about the gospel, to hear about the good news. And so we're excited about this next six weeks, but one of the things that we're doing uh, in connection with this is focusing on a new sermon series, a new message series called Lessons from Our Living Room. And the idea behind the Lessons from Our Living Room, of course, it, it connects, the living room motif connects obviously with an open house. But just like, any, just like kind of any living room in the house, the living room is the place where you tend to have the discussions with your friends that you, uh, that, you know, that, that maybe uh, are focused on the, the big things in life, and you have the serious discussions and maybe that dialogue that goes on about the things that you're going through in life, right? The most meaning, in fact, some of the most meaningful discussions I've ever had, if they're not on my back patio, have been in my living room with friends and family that I love. And of course, we've got this little living room set up here, and it looks so comfort, so kind of comfortable and welcoming. I'm just going to take a seat here for a minute as we explain our series to you. But what we're doing throughout this series is you're going to get a chance to hear from three different, or three different pastors throughout this series. We're going to be talking about different ideas and different questions that we all kind of struggle with or we all have questions about in terms of what it means to live in this world and what it means to live as human beings in this world. And the idea is that we're going to have a, a dialogue as much as we can or a conversation, although we can't have a pure dialogue. We're going to have a conversation like you would in any kind of environment in a living room. If you're sitting across from a friend and you were asking them what was going on in their life, and you're asking them some questions about what they think about uh, certain ideas, then you would have kind of this, this conversation that goes on. We can't have a pure dialogue, but as we do, as we start out these messages, each one of these messages is going to start out with a question. What we believe is a thought-provoking question that will lead to some discussion about not only what we may think uh, what, what kind of the world tells us about what this question may be, but more importantly, what God has to say about this. And the idea for each of us is that we're going to present to you the answer about what God has to say about what any given question. Now this morning, we're going to start out with a big picture question that's going to form the background in some way for the rest, of, in many ways, for the rest of the five weeks that we're going to be exploring. And the question for today is really just the question, what story are you living from? 
All right? And so that question, what story are you living from, comes with a little bit of context. It's built on the idea that all of us as human beings live from some kind of story. We have to in order to kind of make sense of the world that we live in. We have some kind of story that we're living in, something that we believe about the world, some big picture idea of what we believe is true and what it means to live as human beings in this world, things, things that, something that helps us answer questions like where have we been, why are we here, where are we going. You may often hear this referred to as a worldview as well, if that terminology makes more sense to you. That's kind of the philosophical term that's used in this way. But a worldview also makes sense in terms of helping us to understand this is the way that we see the world. It's the lens through which all of us may look at the world around us. And no matter who we are, all of us, again, in order to make sense of the world we live in, have a story or a worldview that we're living by. Even someone who is agnostic, who would say, you know, well, we don't really know what, what's true. We can't really figure it out, right? There's a lot of ambiguity in the world. They're still living by a worldview or a story, and their story is you can't really understand ultimately what is true. Uh, but that is a, that it's a, that's a worldview and a story of its own as, as much as any belief system or religion as well. And you, you may have heard this often talked about because it's trendy these days to talk about narratives, right? Narratives that we believe or subscribe to. And usually in conversation, it's used as kind of a derogatory way, like Jack, like Jack believes this thing about that issue because he's subscribed to a certain narrative. And typically what we mean by that is that uh, Jack doesn't know what he's talking about because he's captive to this narrative that's caused, that's caused his judgment to be clouded, and he doesn't really see clearly and that kind of thing. But think about for a minute, just in talking about the idea of narrative, what we are saying. We're saying that, uh, that, that we all live from a bigger picture. And that the decisions that we make in our everyday lives, the things that we do, the issues that we uh, may see, are all seen through a bigger picture lens, and they're all influenced by a wider narrative. Secondly, it also recognizes that as human beings, we create narratives, again, to make sense of the world that we live in. And finally, that we might also recognize that those narratives come from somewhere. Someone made up a narrative, we decided to believe it, or in some ways we've kind of crafted our own in order to make sense of the things that we're seeing around us. Now, over the past couple of years, of course, we've seen the narrative machine at full force as we've gone through uh, what somebody called, I was talking to somebody earlier today, it was interesting times that we've been through the past couple of years. And I would say, uh, yeah, at the, at the very least, interesting times that we've experienced. But, and there's all kinds of things that we could say that we've gone through over the past few years. But, of course, the three big main events, the death of George Floyd, COVID, and the uh, presidential election, were things in which we saw narratives kind of be exposed and narratives kind of run wild all over the place. Right? And depending on how you wanted to look at it, those events either exposed many different worldviews that people have or they caused even, in some cases, worldviews to shift with people. But the responses based upon those narratives and based upon those worldviews were evident around us. A lot of ways they caused our nation to split. Some cases they caused communities to split, maybe even churches to split. They caused, in some cases, division between family members. And as we look at this in the end, what, what this shows us, even to this day, the results of it all, is that that's the power of the stories we believe. It's that two people can look at the same event and come, come, come away with completely different conclusions, interpretations, and implications from the same event that they see. That's the power of story. That's the power of the narratives that we believe. And so with all of that at stake, with the power of story being so strong, it seems to me that one of the most important questions to ask is not only what story are we living from, but who is the author of that story that we're living from? And here's the thing. 
is that uh, this is really the crux of the series. Who is the author of the stories that we believe and live out? I think for most people today, if you were to ask them, the conventional wisdom today is that we write our own stories, that I'm the author of my own story. It's my life. I write my own story. It's kind of an original story that I'm writing as I work through my life and, and, and the journey of my life. But the question is, is that really true? I think let's, let's talk about that for a few minutes. And I hate to break it to all the kind of free thinkers out there, but the reality is that most of what we believe as human beings, no matter who we are, has been borrowed from someone else, especially when we're talking about kind of human philosophy. All it takes is a simple survey of like a history of philosophy to realize that people have been asking since the beginning of human history the very same questions that we are asking today. Where have we been? What is the meaning of life? Those kinds of things. The big picture questions. And they've come up with all these kinds of different answers, and as a result of their answers, they've formed these philosophical systems that have kind of guided us through history uh, as we've looked at kind of historical thought in the world. And without doing like an entire history of human philosophy, I would say that as you look at it, there's a couple of things that you would notice over time. First of all, that, um, that none of us are objective truth-tellers who author truth on our own. At best, we take ideas from other, from other systems and we kind of put them together as a worldview and we decide that that makes sense to us for whatever reason and so we decide to live by that. Secondly, I would say this, that uh, none of the systems of world philosophy actually get us to a full understanding of the truth. So, history, so, the, so philosophy and truth doesn't develop in a vacuum and then when we're following these philosophies, for the end, they, they have flaws and pitfalls in each one of them. And so as you look at the history of philosophy, for example, the way that things arise is that someone decides, hey, this is what truth looks like, this is the story we should be living by. And they invent this system around it, and then someone else comes along later on and says, well, there's all kinds of flaws and pitfalls in your belief about what is true, and so now I'm going to invent a system based on reacting to the flaws and pitfalls that I see in that system of thought, and then they create their own system of thought. And then time goes on, and someone realizes that there's flaws and pitfalls in that new system, and then they invent a new one, and it goes on and on. It's kind of cyclical throughout history that way. As Solomon wrote, in other words, 3,000 years ago in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Now, at this point, right, the skeptic to Christianity might also say, well, don't Christians, don't you just believe what the Bible tells you? I mean, what original thought is there in that? And as Christians, hopefully we would say, yeah, that's exactly what we believe. We don't believe in original human thought and original human wisdom to guide us to truth. What we believe in is actually revelation. Biblical truth is revelation. In other words, we believe in faith that there is a personal God who reveals truth to us in a way that we were created to understand through communication, through his words to us. Now, it doesn't mean that we, we aren't rational or we don't believe in emotions or we don't believe in the uniqueness of the individual. But what it does mean is that none of those things are more trustworthy in terms of what is true than God's words to us as far as what it means to live in the world that we live in and to understand who we are. And really, it's the difference between believing in, and when you get down to it, it's the difference between believing in what God says versus believing in what a guy named Sigmund or Rene or Friedrich once said who may or may not be, have been, but definitely probably was under the influence of opiates by the, you know, when he wrote his <laughs> system of truth, right? And so I'm not trying to be facetious when I say that, but the point is that no matter who we are, belief all comes, our beliefs come from somewhere, and the wise person should know who authored the story in which they are living from. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. That's what we're going to be talking about really throughout this series. 
And the difference in all of this, though, is that Jesus didn't come to give us a worldview, per se. He didn't come to say, hey, here, follow this set of truths because they're better than the other competing set of truths. Instead, what Jesus said is, follow me because I am the truth. Not here is the truth, but I am the truth. Come and follow me and learn from me. And no other philosopher or religious leader in history could do that. Because Jesus himself was the embodiment of God in the flesh. He was the truth embodied as a human being. Only God can do that. And this is not to say that Christianity doesn't have value statements and tell, tell us what is right and wrong and have many places that tell us you know, what is good and bad, what is true and false, what is healthy and unhealthy. But in the end, all this truth comes back to the person of Jesus. Jesus went to his disciples and said, follow me. And once they followed him, he taught them. And he taught them from fellowship, from communion, from relationship. He didn't hand them a brochure with his political platform. He didn't hand them a religious book. He said, come, follow me, and learn from me. And I will teach you about who I am as the embodiment of truth, and I will teach you about my kingdom. And so he called them to follow him, and he taught them something different. He didn't take a bunch of mixtures of philosophies and put them together and say, I've got this secret elixir of what is actually true. He said, I am the truth. As John wrote in John chapter 1 when, he's, when he was talking about Jesus, he said, the word or the truth became flesh and dwelt among us, the embodiment of truth. Now, Jesus' well, uh, most well-known teaching, which is the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous message in human history, um, in, that, in that teaching, Jesus often uses this phrase over and over again, several times throughout. You have heard it said this, but I am telling you this. Now, this was a really significant phrase, especially for those who were listening to what Jesus was saying, because essentially what he was doing is he would take a common kind of belief at the time. Most of these beliefs were developed by the religious leaders in Israel at the time. And he would say, you have heard it, say, you have heard it said this, but I want to tell you this. And essentially what he was doing was contrasting the common day philosophy or the common day understanding or interpretation of God's word at the time. Now, what he is doing is really significant. Those who would have been listening would have understood exactly what he was doing. He was confronting the religious leaders and the religious teachings of Israel. Now, here's what's so significant about that. Is the religious leaders at the time were considered to be the ones who were the spokesmen for God. And so when Jesus was saying, you have heard it said by them who, are, who claim to be the spokesman of God and who you believe are the spokesman of God, this, I am telling you this instead. What he is saying is not there's just this conflict of truths. What he is saying is that I actually am God in the flesh. Because only God in the flesh can be the one to contradict or to override with authority what is being taught in that place. And so what Jesus is doing is not just comparing or contrasting his teachings with another set of teaching, what he's actually doing is pointing to himself as the one who is the truth. And so when Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said, he's identifying himself as the one who is the embodiment of truth. So in Matthew chapter 5, for example, verses 43 through 44, Jesus says this, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a common teaching of the religious leaders at the time. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When Jesus does this, he's directly confronting a teaching that was popular at the time from the Jewish religious leaders who looked at the Gentiles and especially those like the Romans who were oppressing and persecuting Israel as the ones who were the enemies of God's people. The ones who you would pray for a military Messiah to come and wipe them out from the face of the planet because they were our enemies. But Jesus says... 
I say to you, love your enemies. And not only that, but he would later redefine what it meant for uh, what, what enemies and neighbors actually were in the world. And this is more than just a new way to look at things. What Jesus is doing is intentional. He's putting people to a decision in doing this. What he's saying is you can't believe both that and what I'm saying is true. You either believe that or you believe that what I'm saying is true. And if you believe what I'm saying is true, you're believing that I have the authority to override the common religious beliefs at the time, which made him, of course, the one with the full authority of God. And that's what Jesus is making, that's the claim that Jesus is making with all those statements in the Sermon on the Mount. As true as it was what Jesus said, right, in, in terms of the, the wisdom and the ethical teachings that come from the Sermon on the Mount, in the end, that sermon was not necessarily just about not lying and not, uh, and not getting angry and not committing adultery. It was about Jesus redefining what tr who truth really was. It was about him coming as the one who is the teacher of truth, the embodiment of truth, inviting people to come into his kingdom. And guess what? He's still doing that with all of us, right? Even today, putting us to a place where we don't just take what Jesus taught and say, well, hey, there's some good wisdom in this, and, and there's some good insight into this. I could live like this. I could live in this way. What he's putting us to is a decision of faith. And that's why, as Christians, we believe in revelation by faith. In faith, we trust that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is God in the flesh, so he is the truth. Because we, and because we believe that's true, God cannot do anything, he cannot say anything that is not true. And everything he says is truth. Simply put, if God says it, it's true. And we rebel against it or we ignore it to our own, uh, to our own detriment or even to our own demise. So even today, Jesus says to us often, you have heard it said, but I tell you, you have heard it said this, but I tell you this. And look, in other words, we live in a, in a world right now where you can find answers to all the questions that we're gonna be talking about during this series. I mean, during this series, we're going to hit on questions like, what is, per, what is the purpose of my life? You know, what, what does it look like to be in good, healthy relationships? What, do I, what does it look like to handle my money well? Uh, what about peace and conflict and how we kind of work through forgiveness and all those kinds of things. On every subject that we are talking about over the next five or six weeks, you can find probably a hundred podcasts to address those questions and give you answers on these things. The question, though, in the end is that uh, it, getting an answer is one thing, but getting a true answer is a whole other thing. And when Jesus is saying you have heard it said, he is saying there are all kinds of answers that we can find out there. But the question is, are we finding the true answers? And so as we go through this series, what we're focused on doing is saying, okay, there is a lot of things that, there's a lot of ways that we can answer these questions. And some of them are really good. Some of them are really wise. Some of them may even be uh, very helpful in your life. But what actually does God say about how to answer these big questions in life? And so, with the time that we have left, the question that I asked you earlier, we're going to approach it from this angle, is what story are you living from? And what I want to talk about is this, this idea of the distinction between the story that Jesus was presenting versus the story that the world often presents to us in different ways. And you see this kind of come to the surface as Jesus had various encounters with people in the Gospels. I'm going to give you five encounters uh, that Jesus had with certain people during his earthly ministry that exposed both what the story was that they were living from versus the contrasting story that Jesus was trying to encourage them to live, right? A story of faith. 
And as we identify each of these encounters, what I'm going to do is talk about kind of the way that the world tells us the things that we want or the things that we should want. And there are five of these things. Each of them start with the letter C because alliteration is fun. And uh, we're going to go through this, right? And then we're going to see the contrast between what Jesus offers this person instead, whatever encounter this might be, okay? So we're going to go through it that way. And one thing I want to say on the front end is that as we look at these kind of C words, the things that we want, these are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. But what I want you to see is that Jesus gives us, offers us something even better than what we typically want or are told that we should want from the world's perspective, okay? So the first one is this. We want comfort, but Jesus gives us purpose. You know, we're told by at least three of the gospel writers that Jesus was one time approached by a young man who was very rich. Luke actually identifies him as a ruler, so he's often called the rich young ruler. You may know the story, but apparently this, money, this man had a lot of money, he had a lot of power, he had a lot of status. In other words, he had everything a young man could want to make him comfortable in this world. But there was one thing that he didn't have and that he recognized that Jesus talked a lot about, and that was eternal life. It was the one thing he couldn't buy. It was the one thing that his power wouldn't give him in this world. And so he went and asked Jesus at one, in one case, how can I inherit eternal life? Luke records the encounter from Luke 18, verses 18 through 23, and it says this. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, well, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now when Jesus hears this, sees this man, and he recognizes who he is, Jesus also recognizes the fact that all that this young man had was making him comfortable in the world. And so Jesus addressed what was making him comfortable or rooted in this world and called him to something greater. He called him to a greater purpose. And notice that it turns on that phrase where Jesus says, one thing you still lack. Distribute all that you have to the poor so that you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus gave this young man an invitation to purpose. He said, instead of comfort, come and follow me. And instead of earthly treasures, come and invest in heavenly treasures. Instead of building your own kingdom, come and join me and follow me into my kingdom. In the end, it was too much for the young man to give up because in the end, he decided he wanted comfort rather than the risk of following Jesus. Now, we're often the same way. Maybe not as rich as this young man, maybe not with as much power or status, but we do spend a lot of time and effort and attention in our lives building a comfortable life for ourselves and our families, right? As the story goes, we work as hard as we can when we're young so that we can save up enough to maybe retire early, have a comfortable retirement, and enjoy the, the years that we have in retirement and our lives in comfort and with as much freedom as possible. And then that's the end. But Jesus offers more. Instead of comfort, Jesus calls us to a purpose. And the purpose is to follow him to be kingdom of God-minded, to set our purpose in life on the higher calling of the kingdom of God, and to have eternity matter more than just being comfortable in this world. Instead, Jesus gives us a mission to seek and to save that which was lost in this world as we follow him by faith. 
It's not retirement, it's engagement. And it's a calling to something greater. We're going to talk more about this idea in weeks to come, especially next week when we talk about purpose. But for now, let's move on to the second one. We want control, but Jesus gives us faith. You know, Jesus was big on calling people to faith wherever he was and whatever environments he was teaching in and encounters that he had with people. And his call was to trust in his purposes and his agenda rather than our own. Now, during Jesus' ministry, people would often come to him as a miracle worker. They recognized that, you know, either I was sick or I had a friend or a family member who was sick, and they understood that, and and they heard the rumors that Jesus was this miracle worker, and so they would either take themselves if they could get to Jesus, or they would take their friend or family member to Jesus so that they could possibly be healed. Now, this wasn't a bad thing, of course, to want to be healed, right, in the end, right? To have control over something like our physical health is not necessarily a bad thing. But what we realize is that every time somebody came to Jesus for physical healing, he pointed to something bigger. He pointed not only to the physical healing, but the spiritual nature of their healing as well as what was more important than what they were seeking. That, he, that they wanted to be healed physically, he wanted to be the one who healed their souls. And here's one example, a story from Mark chapter 9, which is a story about a young, a young boy, a young man, who from his youth had struggled with seizures that the Bible tells us had been caused by an evil spirit that was in him. Now his father apparently brings this young boy to Jesus and asks Jesus if he would heal him. And the focus is less on the young boy, and it begins to shift in this narrative, at least from Mark chapter 9, to the reaction of the father and, and Jesus' call to faithfulness. In Mark chapter 9, verses 20 through 24, it says this, And they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire or into water to try to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, for those of us who are parents, you can imagine being in this situation. Right? Your child is convulsing, having seizures because he's being tormented by an evil spirit. How helpless you might be. And the thing that you would want more than anything is control over the situation so you could just make that pain and suffering go away somehow. We often face those situations in our lives. Whether it's an extreme like this or whether it's just something smaller where something is going on that's affecting us or someone we love, our first reaction is to try to grab control of the situation and get whatever help we can in that place. But what happens when we realize that we don't really have control over the situation? What happens in this case is that Jesus calls this father to faith. And in the very same way, Jesus calls us to faith. The reality is God has control over that situation. He doesn't always share, and he doesn't usually share that kind of control uh, with us in our case. But what he does say is, I'm giving you something greater. I'm giving you faith. I'm giving you the ability to trust me in the midst of this situation, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this uh, kind of case where, or situation where you want to be in control. I'm giving you the ability to trust me in the midst of it, and I'm calling you to trust me in the midst of it. And this is personal faith, to trust in a God revealed in Jesus who is good and who will ultimately make all things good for us, even when it doesn't look like it in the moment. You know, God doesn't reveal everything in the world to us as far as the way that things will play out, as far as the way that things will end up. 
But God reveals himself to us and tells us to trust him, which is much better in the end. Third, we want convenience, but Jesus gives us truth. You know, in John chapter 3, we're told that one night a man named Nicodemus came to Jesus to ask him some questions and to gain some wisdom from Jesus. Now, what's significant about this, of course, is that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and Jesus and the Pharisees didn't necessarily have a good relationship if you read through the Gospels. In fact, what you see is it's the Pharisees that often, uh, that often incurred the hardest, harshest words and judgments from Jesus during his earthly ministry. And undoubtedly, Nicodemus would have been part of that group that Jesus had harsh words for at times. What we see, though, in John chapter 3 is that apparently something that Nicodemus heard from Jesus or in some way he was inspired by Jesus and wanted to find out more about what Jesus was talking about, especially regarding, again, this topic of eternal life. And so he goes to find Jesus one night, and in John chapter 3, John records the uh, encounter for us. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that, that you do unless God is with him. Well, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, notice at the beginning, John tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. What Jesus was doing is coming to, or what Nicodemus was doing was coming to Jesus under the cover of night so that he wouldn't be recognized. Because it would have been a scandalous thing for a religious leader of Israel to go to this man who wasn't an official religious leader, who was just this teacher that was wandering about confronting the Pharisees, to go to him and to ask him for wisdom or for teaching. And you see the way Nicodemus addresses Jesus with respect. Rabbi, tell me about, what the, uh, about, about eternal life and what you're teaching. And I don't know what Nicodemus' motives were, but it was certainly inconvenient for him to come to Jesus in this way. And so, in some ways, he was embracing this idea of inconvenience in order to pursue truth. But, G, but, but, but what Jesus says to him is even more inconvenient than what Nicodemus is experiencing. He says to him, you must be born again. He was calling Nicodemus, in other words, to die to all of that that he had built up in his life in order to follow Jesus. You must be born again. Now, for Nicodemus, he had invested a lot of his life in training and education to become a Pharisee. And what Jesus is saying essentially to Nicodemus is, you can either be that or you can follow me. And in order to follow me, you must die to yourself and be born again by the power that I give you, by the salvation that I give you. Nothing, of course, can be more inconvenient than dying to yourself for the sake of following someone else. And this is exactly what Jesus was offering Nicodemus. I think in some ways, I'm just guessing in this way, this is my own speculation, but I think in some ways Nicodemus was approaching Jesus thinking to himself, well, I can still keep my life as a Pharisee, and if their teaching is right, then I'm covered there, and I can hedge my bets over here with, with this Jesus guy as well, because if he is who he says he is, then I can follow him as well, and so I can still be a Pharisee but also follow Jesus at the same time. That was convenience for Nicodemus. But Jesus said, you must die to all of that in order to follow me. And the truth is that in our world, truth is rarely convenient because it means following Jesus. And following this Jesus in this world, I don't know if you've noticed, is not always convenient. It's a prime example of what truth calls us to. 
But Jesus calls us to truth out of convenience. Jesus, uh, we also want, here's another thing that we also typically want, we want conquest, but Jesus gives us communion. You know, the word conquest, I'll admit, is a little bit of a stretch. I needed a C word, so I kind of stretched it into this. But you can think of conquest as meaning like success or victory in life. However we might define success in life. What is that in, in, in our lives? What is that in this world? Now, wherever Jesus went during his earthly ministry, he was often surrounded by people who wanted Jesus to be kind of a military or political messiah. And what they wanted him to be, in other words, was someone who would defeat Rome and defeat those who were oppressing Israel so that Israel could be politically and militarily free. Now, at a point in Jesus' ministry where he was gaining a lot of popularity, Jesus recognized the motives of the crowds who were flocking after him because they believed that this might be the Messiah who will finally defeat Rome and set Israel free. And at one point in John chapter 6, John tells us that people in the crowd demanded that Jesus show him signs that he was the Messiah that they were expecting him to be. In other words, they were basically telling Jesus to conform to their idea of what a Messiah should be. They were basically saying to Jesus, they wanted him to act like a politician. Make us promises that you will give us victory and we'll back you, we'll support you. John chapter 6, John records Jesus' reactions to the crowd when they demanded a sign. Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of, what, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the distinction between the victory that the people wanted and the victory that Jesus is describing here? As great as it would have made the Israelites to feel to have political and military victory over the Romans, Jesus was inviting people there to a greater victory, eternal communion with God. This is the greatest victory because this victory is a conquest over sin and death for eternity that unites us to God. It was eating the bread of life and drinking the living water that gives us eternal life. Ultimate victory over death. It's resurrection victory for eternity in heaven, not just a temporary military victory on earth. Not just gaining the world, but gaining resurrection life and communion with God forever. Finally, we often want confirmation, but Jesus gives us transformation. In one of the most significant moments of his ministry, Jesus famously washed the feet of his disciples before his last meal with them in the upper room. And in doing so, he was taking the role in the position of a house servant. Now Peter, recognizing what Jesus was doing, felt like this action was beneath Jesus, and he didn't understand exactly why Jesus was doing it, and so he objected in the moment and opposed Jesus in terms of when, when it came for Jesus to wash Peter's feet. And we see that here in John chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. And then Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, how, why would you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now what Jesus was doing here for Peter was obviously more than just washing his feet. 
He was teaching him something new and pointing him to something greater. Peter needed to be washed, but not just his feet or his hands. He needed to be washed by Jesus' salvation. His soul and his spirit needed to be washed. Peter needed Jesus as his Savior, and Peter needed Jesus to transform him. Not to just confirm his wrong beliefs about Jesus, but to transform and to change Peter's perspective and his understanding of who Jesus was. You know, one of the symptoms of the current world, world philosophy that we live in that's dominant is that it teaches us that we need to be confirmed in whatever we believe, right? So it's my truth, it's your truth, but it's all confirmed as all kind of being truth, and we want to be confirmed in who we believe that we are and what, our tr- what we believe our truth to be. The problem is, is what if what we believe in is false? And what if our identity isn't really who we are? And what if, if as we're being confirmed and everybody's telling us how great we are, what if we're not really that great? What if we're really just kind of jerkish, right? We don't, in those cases, confirmation does nothing for us. What we actually need is transformation. Do we want to just be confirmed in all of that, or is there something better? Jesus calls us to change for our own good. He calls us to change to the things that are broken so that we would be transformed by him. In Peter's case, Peter also tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross and being uh, being arrested. And of course, Jesus famously said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He didn't just confirm Peter in in what Peter was believing. He actually confronts Peter and says, you need to change and transform your thinking. There's an old saying that Jesus loves us enough to meet us wherever we are, which is true. He meets us wherever we are, and whatever past we have, whatever sin we're in, uh, whatever place we're in in life, he loves us and he meets us exactly where we are but that he also loves us too much to leave us there. He sees what needs to be washed, and he sees what needs to be transformed in us. And he gives us transformation rather than just mere confirmation. Now as we continue this series, we're going to see more of the discussion on all of these big issues that we've talked about here today, particularly that question or that approach of, you have heard it said this by the world that you live in, but Jesus says this instead. And there's a difference between, what we'll see is that there's a difference between living from our story or the world's story versus living in God's story and living from God's story. But for now, as we close up, I want to ask you the same question that we started this message with this morning, which is, which story are you living from? Is there any way that you would answer that question differently now than what you, how you may have answered it when we walked in this morning? Is there a way that you would like to answer that question differently now than before? I would encourage you to talk to God about that. Talk to a friend about it. And also, I want to invite you to come back for the next five weeks as we discuss a little bit more, continuing that discussion about what God has to say about these things, right? You have heard it said this, but I tell you this, from the one who is the embodiment of truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you this morning that you would uh, speak to our hearts. We know that you are faithful in speaking to us in your word. We thank you that you love us enough to give us words that we can understand that reveal not just truths, but the truth, the one who is the truth, who is Jesus. And we pray that as we work through this series, Lord, that you would give us understanding and wisdom you would help us to see um, the ways in which we may so subtly believe in 
of the things that have been taught to us, the things that we have heard, versus what it is that you tell us. And we need discernment and wisdom in order to see the difference. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would do that work in our hearts and our minds. We ask that you would make us available to be taught. <laughs> we don't assume that we come to this place and we, we come to your word all the time with open hearts and open minds. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds over the next several weeks that we're together so that we could see the treasure in the way that you teach us. That it truly is better to have purpose than comfort. It's truly better to have truth rather than convenience. Lord, it's better to have transformation than rather than to just be confirmed in the things that we tend to believe in, which may lead us astray. And Lord, we ask you to transform us in that way. Transform our minds, Lord. We know that your word says that we are called to be transformed and renewed according to our minds and that you do that work in us. And so, Lord, would you do that work in us? Would you help us to see what's most important as we ask these big questions of what's most important in this world, who we are, who you are, what you call us to be? Would you guide us by your faithful and good and truthful hand? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, We'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you again for joining us this morning. I hope you'll stay with us because the food trucks are open. Uh, they opened a few minutes ago, and so they're ready for you guys to uh, go ahead and enjoy either one of the trucks. So each person here is able to have a free meal on us, right? And at one of the food trucks, there's a Mexican food truck, and then there's also a barbecue truck. So make your mind up now, and then go find your truck, and you're allowed to have one meal uh, free of cost to enjoy. Uh, here as our gift to you. And so what we're going to do is hang out. There's some tables that are set up in the lobby now and in the cafe. We invite you to find a place and just enjoy some time with one another as we continue to enjoy our open house event and our focus. If you need prayer, the Plums are over here being our prayer partners for this service. So if you need someone to pray with you as you leave, they'd be happy to pray with you. Uh, Steve and Catherine are great people, very approachable, and, and they love the Lord. They love people as well. So they'll be happy to pray with you. Um, also, if you have prayer requests that you'd rather write down on a, on, a, on a prayer request card, we have cards that are located at the table as you leave here this morning. You can drop them in the offering stands, and we'll make sure that we get those to our prayer teams to be praying with you over whatever you're facing in your life right now over the next week or so. So that being said, go enjoy the food trucks. Enjoy your time together this afternoon, and, uh, and, and, and have a great time. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.